Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, a podcast from Summit Dog Rescue in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Emily. And I'm Libby. We're both professional dog trainers with multiple certifications in dog training and behavior. Together, we have more than two decades of experience in dog rescue. We want to share everything we've learned along the way with other folks involved in dog rescue, sheltering, fostering, and adoption, and anyone who just loves dogs. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And today we are bringing you an interview with the one and only Annie Phoenix. She is the author of multiple dog training books, and her latest is Positive Training for Aggressive and Reactive Dogs. And that's what we're talking about with her today. I loved this book and I loved talking with Annie. Um, This book is really one of my favorite dog training books and dog behavior books that I've ever read. And I would urge every listener to grab it, get it for the holidays. It's just indispensable as a guide for living with your dog regardless. Yeah. And, and as Emily likes to say, you know, the title is almost um, misleading because even if you don't have a reactive or aggressive dog, this book is so valuable. As we talk about in the episode, reactivity is just, it's a behavior that any dog can exhibit and, um, understanding it and understanding your dog from their point of view is a really crucial aspect of training a reactive dog. And preventing reactivity and fear. I think that that's almost a better title for it. Yeah, Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, listeners, stay tuned to our social media because Annie very generously offered to give away not only a copy of her new book, but a um, uh, a seat in her upcoming webinar with Laura Donaldson. Yeah. So like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. We think we're going to hold that free giveaway and the conversation with Annie probably the first or second week of December. And then the webinar is I think early January. So you want to, you want to tune in and attend that webinar either with the free ticket or without, it's going to be really amazing. It's on how to socialize puppies in this new mindful way to produce really stable dogs. Definitely don't want to miss that one. Annie Phoenix is a professional dog trainer and a journalist. She has multiple dog training certifications and her books, The Midnight Dog Walkers and Positive Training for Aggressive and Reactive Dogs have helped dog guardians worldwide. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Annie Phoenix, welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Thank you. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So let's just jump right in. Your new book is Positive Training for Aggressive and Reactive Dogs. And we would love to hear a little bit about your history that hit, you know, starting in rescue. What brought you to write this book? I had no intentions to write a book. This is my second book. The first was The Midnight Dog Walkers. And I always write for dog owners um, because there just aren't enough positive reinforcement behavior experts out there and owners need somewhere to start. So that's, that's always who I'm writing for. I felt like I wanted to ask as a journalist who, what, where, when, and why, what has changed since I wrote the last book? What 
are the top people or the most interesting people, the most capable people, the most skilled people doing in the industry for troubled dogs. And, and the title restricts it, to, I think, to many because it seems like it's just about reactivity and aggression. It's not. It's about the major um, concerns that owners have and why, why the dogs are acting the way they are acting. And so I did say yes, and I'm glad I did because this book actually changed my own life in profound ways that I did not ever expect. I I mean, it just has blown me away. We can talk about the why of that later. I'm in love with the book. I wrote to you and said, if every person read this book before they got a dog or when they brought their dog home, I think it would put our rescue and all rescues and shelters on the road to being obsolete. It It's just it's great because it's written for the owner and I didn't actually realize that, but that's what resonated with me. So any, you know, any lay person can read this book and it's so easy to read, but it has all the latest information that all these incredible minds are putting together all over the world in the past 10 years that hasn't, there hasn't been like a nice segue for the general public to get access to that information. So just kudos, best book I've read. I think it's, the one everyone should read now. So I'm I'm just thrilled with the book. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, it, you know, you do, I did have a table of contents, which I followed, um, but it was the discovery of talking to colleagues um, that just blew my mind. Like, you know, it was Laura, Dr. Laurel Donaldson who said she's an expert in the book on reactivity and she's doing fascinating stuff. Um, I heard her on a live with Andrew Hale, Beyond the Operant, which is on YouTube, and people can listen to it. That first got my attention. What were they talking about, Beyond the Operant? And she said, you know, counter conditioning doesn't always work, and it's slow. And I'm like, they're going to they're gonna take your titles away. <laughs> you cannot say that in public, out loud. And I think she's exactly right. A lot of my clients just didn't get it. It was too too long. And now that I know more because of what I've learned from my colleagues, that doesn't address trauma. It doesn't address nervous system regulation. It doesn't create safety for the dog, which are the themes of the book. Is that's that's our priority as trainers and shelter and foster homes and owners. It's like we are the world doesn't feel safe to us thanks to COVID, but it, it and all sorts of horrible things, um, and it does not feel safe to our dogs. And they, as a species, I say in the book, they are not well. We're not well. They reflect us, we reflect them. We're very similar in our body systems and cognition. And um, it's a crisis, it's been a crisis. I've always felt it's a crisis coming out of rescue and I'm sure you guys do too. You know, it's just a daily onslaught of dogs in need. And um, it's why we get burned out so easily because it's just, it never ends. And you see you see horrible things. You, you meet really good adopters and they, that keeps us going, I think. But um, so we we have to address the trauma in the room and the forefront of the industry is doing that. Like we're finally talking about what does a traumatized dog look like and how do we help that dog? So I, instead of saying, and labels are dangerous, we've always said, don't call your dog lazy or stupid or whatever. Don't do that. We're fine saying they're reactive in the industry or aggressive. Well, what does that tell an owner? Because it doesn't say the dog is suffering and the dog is scared. You know, that's completely, and the dog is traumatized. So in, if the dog is reactive, it, it's overreacting to something and it stimulates, it's seeing a threat where may, maybe there isn't a threat. Sometimes it's just the dog's collar tags that they hear if it's a dog that concerns them. It's often a dog, but it could be baby baby strollers and bikes and skateboards and cars. It could be, and it tends to grow. I find it starts with one thing 
and then the nervous system is on high alert. So I feel like as the industry, we focused on the wrong things that I think we needed the science for a long time because otherwise it's just Uncle Bob in the backyard who grew up with dogs. And so there's, you know, we all have learned the science. We're really good learners. But I think we got stuck. So it, the expectations that owners have, I hope owners are listening to this and and take a take a step back because we need to reframe why we get dogs in the first place because they don't have a choice where they end up. Just like I grew up in a very dysfunctional family and so that's why I started studying trauma on my own. I didn't have a choice with that family. I didn't have a choice to be in Texas. <laughs> I did not belong in Texas. I have Texas PTSD to this day. Tornadoes, droughts, floods, fire ants. No, I needed to be in mountains. And I was with a family that wasn't healthy for me at all. And that's how I feel about dogs. They might get one of our homes, which we've spent our lives <laughs> educating ourselves um, to help that dog have its best life and make that dog a priority in our life. Or they might just be, like most dogs, there to comfort the human. And I think that that's a really good point. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, that so many people who are drawn to working with animals have trauma histories on their own. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about our owners' homes. You know, how many people are themselves dysregulated, like you mentioned, bringing dysregulated dogs into their homes and setting these expectations way too high? It's not difficult to see that that's a recipe for dysfunction. We know emotional contagion is a real thing. It's against the human starting with the standpoint of I'm stressed, I'm lonely, I need to be comforted as, as we saw in COVID. People got dogs like crazy and then oops, had to go back to work. And now shelters and rescues are dealing with that and dogs are having to deal with it. Instead of saying, am I really ready for this animal? Am I, can I meet this species needs? It's, it is a recipe for dogs not being well. And they're not. The bite, biting has gone way up in the U.S. and the U.K. and all over. And reactivity is up. When I interviewed those 17 experts in my book, I asked them, are you busy <laughs> since because you know we all had to stop like with the rest of the world and figure out how to do online consulting which i think actually works better especially for problem behavior problems um but we had to figure all that out and i asked all of them this was in 2021 and they're slammed that any behaviorist can have six months to a year wait there's not enough of those there's not enough of trainers either positive reinforcement trainers and they're seeing um you know just Younger and younger dogs with bigger and bigger problems. And if you look at the media, I'm a journalist, and so I'm always looking at the media and 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 um, finding patterns. That's what journalists are really good at doing. And there, dogs are mauling people, you know. And that was so rare. And it's like they they've had it. The species has had it. And I think one reason my book is popular is because I put the not the blame, but I hold humans responsible. And I haven't seen another training book do that. Like, it, you know, the first two chapters are why. Why are we in this mess? What has happened to dogs? It's our breeding practices, which are horrendous. It's not meeting their needs. It's our expectations that are way too high. It's not letting a dog be a dog. You know, when a, an owner calls and says, my dog is barking, he's, dogs bark. I mean, excessive barking is different. 
And then why? Well, I'm at work and he's in his crate 12 hours a day. And you, like, you, there's a disconnect. You don't see why that animal is unhappy. Um, just, we're at a tipping point, I think, for humans and dogs. The good news is, is that there are these bright minds out there addressing this in, in dogs. And there's finally a conversation about what a dog needs and loving the dogs. I'd say we got to talk about why we got them. It's because we love them. And then science had to prove that in the brain, there's a love hormone. Like those of us who love dogs, we didn't need the proof. But it's there. So people can shut up about whether dogs love us or not, because check that one out. That's so interesting. We, you know, get emails every day from people who want to surrender their dogs to us because we're a rescue. They Google rescues and we come up in our area. And the amount of people wanting to rehome their dogs through us has probably quadrupled since 2020. And, you know, all like we'll start conversing with them. And it's so sad because it's, it's those things that you're talking about, like they love their dog. They wanted their dog to be part of their family, but then they just didn't have the right information. Um, and so I just, I, I feel like all the things you talk about in here can, can keep people on that path so that the dog doesn't go off the rails. Um, I wanted to get into a couple specifics that, which you kind of already did, um, is just that, that sense of like knowing that your dog is a dog instead of treating it as a little child that should have some sort of like moral compass built in because it's a you know, primate and they're not even primates. And a part of meeting their meat, their needs is, you know, we think, I think that a lot of owners think I have given, I've taken this dog from the shelter. He didn't have a home. I gave, opened my home. He peed in it because he wasn't potty trained. He um, bothers my cat, but I got him the best bed and the best food and he has his vet care and he needs to just kind of not bother me <laughs> with his needs. Um, and that's one reason I hate to say it, but um, for many years, breeds like golden retrievers and Labradors, and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels were so popular to the to the detriment of those breeds and in some respect of everything that they're mixing poodles with. Um, they were, I, you know, kind of a softer, they're not a German Shepherd or a Rottweiler, which I've always had big, strong, or a hunter breed that just is, won't stop moving. Um, those are family dogs, considered family dogs. And the expectation on a golden retriever is just... It, and now they now have reactivity, just like Labradors do. Every breed has it. Um, with flashing red light that we have a problem. So it's it is meeting their needs and understanding that they have them. I love that in the book how you talk about like digging and barking and you know sniffing is one thing that if we could get to the entire public that letting their dog sniff is meeting their needs. I think in the book you say if you can only do one thing, let them sniff as much as they want. And Sarah Fisher's ACE uh, Animal Centered Care and Free Work, I absolutely love. And she's interviewed in the book and talks about that. And I got to meet Sarah in August at her farm, at Tilly Farm, which was definitely a bucket list item for me. But I liked the concept of free work and people can look it up um, and go to uh, ACE Centered Care. It's a Facebook group that's free to join. I, I love the example of ACE Free Work, and that's one of one of my favorites as well. It brings to mind the fact that a lot of these really cutting edge techniques that 
were discussing and that you discuss in your book, they don't look like training. And that makes it difficult for us as trainers because owners want, guardians want, you know, this, we do X, Y, Z and out comes a trained dog. <laughs> and it's really tough to get people's buy-in. Yeah. And that's the, the split in the industry on the force free side. Um, and I think there is friction because people have spent 20 years and thousands upon thousands of dollars to learn about behaviorism and functional analysis and um, understanding that A happens and B happens and C happens in this order. And I have never been that way. I'm very comfortable in gray areas and I'm relationship centered. I've been relationship focused forever in my work. It's just gotten more and more important as I've grown and I've learned like the Midnight Dog Walkers was kind of an out there book because it wasn't, this is the four quadrants and you're doing it wrong, by the way. <laughs> um, and I've always had that emotional connection and Midnight Dog Walkers was not well received by the old guard <laughs> in the industry. It was by younger trainers and they kind of made it a cult classic or people new to the industry who didn't know that you're not supposed to talk about loving dogs. That's how far away we got just focusing purely on the science. Um, and now I think the industry is kind of catching up with that. If you call a trainer today and it's force free, I hope you get a trainer that puts the bond first and talks about that bond and talks about the bond has broken down and you're frustrated with that animal and that animal is just as frustrated with you and you both need relief. And I feel like it's our job now not to train, sit down, stay heal, primarily, particularly with behavior issues, it's to figure out where the bond is broken and where there's frustration and why the dog isn't feeling safe. You know, if a behavior is obsessive, there's either a physical problem. We know that pain is a huge contributor to behavior um, or there's an emotional problem or the dog that's bothering the human <laughs> because of the barking, because of the shredding of the couch, because of the, you know, jumping on the children. And it can be a little problem, behavior problem, or and it can be a very, very big one, like separation anxiety and reactivity, which I wrote the book for dog owners to begin working on their dogs now, because you might not get a trainer uh, and a good trainer, um, a knowledgeable trainer who's kind and compassionate. So, And that's the, the switch, too, that's happening in the industry. And I want owners to ask, do you train with kindness? Do you use anything that's going to harm my bond with my dog? It's not... Our industry is not going to change, particularly in the States, until the owners rise up and say, I, we are not, you are not allowed to harm my dog and know what harm looks like. And if you back up even further, that goes to canine body language, which I learned from the shelter dogs. I relate so much to all of what you're saying, Annie. My, my healer is a rescue from rural Texas, and she suffered immensely when we rescued her. And I will be perfectly honest. Yeah, she she had a um, she had a birdshot wound. She was heartworm positive, but she was picked up by animal control running loose in the country, and we brought her to an urban condo. And she suffered when we rescued her, and it wasn't until it clicked with us that she needs a different environment to feel safe that her behavior, quote unquote, behavior improved. <laughs> relax and trust. Exactly. And you met her needs. And so I have cattle dogs, and so I don't have cows. 
In the past, I've always had acreage on purpose and we fenced everything. I, ha- I would be a very rich person if I had stopped spending money on fences. Our front yard here is $10,000 for $50 dogs because <laughs> I feel that that's the responsibility. Um, so the least we can do is give them an, an interesting fenced yard to be in. Um, not all day when you're at work either, but supervised. Um, and so I have cattle dogs. I don't have cows. Do my dogs wish they had cows? Probably genetically speaking, they'd probably be really good at it. They came from working lines, two two working lines, border collie and, and cattle dog. Um, but so we have to do other things. And that's part of what the book talks about. The free work, using their noses, making that a priority. Safety is number one. And again, I said it took six months for our two to trust us. Even with all of my knowledge, and they didn't go to a shelter. I got them from, they were thrown in the backyard, I know, because they had, it was southern Utah, they had fleas and they had worms, two kinds of worms. We don't have fleas where we are. And they were starting to resource guard and eat really fast. And I feel like they just dumped kibble into a bowl and let six puppies go for it. And it's a great way to, and they weren't, they were hungry. You know, so the food became very important. They didn't have, they lacked everything. They were, they were in horrible emotional shape after being jerked from their mother at five weeks. So I knew that we had to help them and I, I felt that I could. But I looked back at the photos. I talk a lot about dogs' eyes. One, because they haunt me from the ones I couldn't take um, for 10 years in shelters. But two, our their eyes tell us so much. And I don't feel like we focus enough on eyes as trainers. Like we talk about the whale eye, or maybe they blink real slow, or maybe they're squinting. And one reason we, I think we don't is because dogs are often on leash and they're in front of you. Or you're walking forward. You can't be also looking at their face and walk forward. <laughs> so Annie, I am part of your Facebook group. And I saw recently that you had some foster puppies in your care. Can you tell us about that experience and how you use things from your book, information from your book, to help these puppies integrate into your home and help them settle? I realized with two, two foster puppies that we had last week, incredibly malnourished, horrible existence for 11 years. They looked like the kinds of dogs that I would see on, on the reservations driving through New Mexico and Southern Colorado, like barely hanging on, failure to thrive kind of dogs and little, cute little Labradoodles. Um, I had them here for six days and I accomplished that sense of safety and resilience in six days using what I learned from the book from other people that I didn't get done in six months with my two. And I added a, a few things, even though I was creating safety, creating calm. And I, I could tell that because I took so many photos of both sets of dogs, mine, mine are siblings. And I, I didn't see a shift in my own dog's eyes until about six months it, based on the photograph when I go back and look at that. And they were starving on Monday. I fed them every four hours. I calculated the hours that I spent. Um, it was 144 hours and they were alone three because they were headed towards separation anxiety. I don't know if you want me to go into the, their situation, but oh, yeah. um, I'd love to hear what you did and tell us. These were tiny little dogs. They pierced me with their eyes, again, the eyes, and they looked sad. Like what? And I said, did they just get here? And they were covered in crap. And their coats were terrible and they were skinny. And I think they were probably fed kibble once a day because anytime you turned your back and they were behind a, a crate or in a kennel, they shrieked like they were going to die. Panic barking is what I would call it. And I think they learned that that person disappearing, that's the end of the food, I'm guessing. I mean, it was that, it wasn't like I'm scared to be alone. It was, please don't leave me, I might die kind of barking. That I knew, I had, I feel like I needed to do house training 
ASAP and calm their systems down ASAP um, because that's not going to work in a person's home. That is that is shipping a pro- a dog that has a severe problem. And what what are people supposed to do? Who go to work or have children, which is most people. But these dogs needed serious intervention, and so I took two. No, I took three. They slept that night for the first time. Deep sleep. That's what you have to have. What I did is I focused on everything I've learned in the last three or four years from all of these experts and all my work in trauma, my own trauma work and somatic body work, which I've learned from Dr. Laura Donaldson, which I did not know anything about. And it's it's getting to your lizard brain, your amygdala and calming down your your trauma response that your brain, your lizard brain still thinks you have to do. You know, like if you were in a house fire as a kid and everybody got out safe, but your, your home was destroyed, you might be real twitchy about smoke alarms or seeing or smelling fire and you might not even know why if you were looking at so training doesn't reach that part of the trauma response the response is still there thinking that your brain needs to protect you and your body reacts before your mind they were just exhausted trying to survive and it, so i did the potty training they went out on a schedule i fed four times a day i felt like food was way more important and rest than anything else i could do um, and potty training because they had to be potty trained to be successful in the next home. I provided safety. I provided routine, uh, deep safety, as Dr. Laura uh, Donaldson called it, in that I was I needed to calm down that nervous system and that lizard brain for them. Um, so with Rocky, I realized very early, and I wish I'd gotten on film, and I didn't get this. He had a freeze response, which is classic trauma response. So if you picked him up, he just froze. I realized that the little blonde runt, he was very much the runt, did not want to be petted. And he did not want to be picked up. And he's little. And people pick up little dogs. I almost feel like maybe he was with a kid at that foster house and he was picked up a lot. And I had a roommate called roommate in town and she's not a dog person, but mo- most dog people, they reached towards him. She picked him up and she goes, oh, he's, he's cuddly. I said, please put him down. He's not cuddly. He's frozen. He's absolutely frozen. And so I stopped petting him. And I let him come up to me and I did what Laura Donaldson taught me, which is some somatic body work. So there's a acupuncture point here and for dogs too. And so I, you do it counterclockwise and it, it's a vein and it goes all the way back here or a meridian. And listeners, I just want to narrate what Annie's showing us right now. She's rubbing um, her temples and then up and behind, over and behind the ear. Well, the ears are important. They have tons and tons of uh, nerves in there. But it's this indention at the end of your eyebrow, you can feel it's the temple. And you go counterclockwise, you don't have to do it very long, back along the ear, and there's another indention at the base of your ear, and then down to the collarbone. So I did that, um, the shelter called him Percy, so he had like three names. I started rubbing on both sides because his face was so little. The temple, counterclockwise, and he could leave. That's consent. That's building confidence. He would just come over and he just, he wouldn't move. But he liked it, and I think that that's somatic body work. And being outside is being grounded. Within, like, I could see them growing and getting confident and being happy. The hourly and their coat when their coats relaxed. I'm like, this is this is wild, and that's why I recorded all of it. And Laura Donaldson and I, and I are doing a course, um, transforming puppies in January because of I used a lot of what she taught me with these dogs. By the end of it, you could pick him up because he trusted me. I still didn't do it a lot, but um, it was that pressure point and all the other things I did. Like if you just rub the dog's temple, that's not enough. The sleeping, the deep sleeping, the deep safety, 
Um, the other thing that interesting that happened was they wore my healers out. And you know how hard it is to, like, we can't wear them out. We've tried. <laughs> I still haven't gotten back to the barking and the shrieking and how I fix that. And so if you walked away, so I'm in the bedroom right now. There's a closet and a ba- bathroom. If I went out of sight for a second, it was a cue, screaming, barking in the crate. And so it finally, the, the light bulb went off. I had them in the crate because of puppy potty training. That's the only, and so they could sleep and not just play, 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 or explore whatever they're doing. Um, and that's what I use crates for is potty training. I think a lot of us do or expense, but I finally, so I got them potty trained within three days. And then I realized they're much happier outside the crate than in, other than sleep. And we had to pick them up to put them and they were smart. And so they're starting to run from us. I'm like, this isn't good. <laughs> so what I did is I got out my snuffle mats, which my dogs just flip in the air. They don't care. And they shake it. And they're done. They don't have any use for it, but started feeding their kibble in there. And again, still feeding them four times a day. And then I started throwing it on the floor in our long hallway. And that that was like on Friday, I finally figured that out. And they were so busy sniffing with their head down and figuring out the snuffle mat that I could leave. I could go to the kitchen. And I left the front door open if they wanted to leave because our front yard is fenced. And I could cook in the kitchen like a normal puppy. And then I saw Percy or Rocky, the little one, started hopping up and down. I, I It almost broke me. He was so cute. Uh, you know, put it on the floor, put it on the floor. I want to search. I want to search. I want to search. And then they started in the evening, we'd run to the bedroom and they ran to the crates and knew that that's where they were going to sleep and not forever. And the barking stopped. I worked it um, a lot in the bedroom where I'd go into the bathroom, still talking. I'm just right here. I'll be right back. And with the girl for somatic body work, I also did the rubbing of the temples because just petting in and of itself can be aversive to a dog. We say the dog decides what's aversive. I'm going to quit talking here in a minute. <laughs> it was just so fascinating to me to see the quick transition. Um, she liked the somatic body work as well. And she did like to be held. And he didn't. So we don't, we don't do that. We met their needs where they were individually. It, was, it blew my mind. It has me thinking all sorts of things. But what if we, we show foster families about forget, sit down, stay right now. Don't put a harness on it. Don't take it to the park. For that first week, it's intense. And you need to be ready. You know, take week off work and make them like warrior fosters. And let's recalibrate that nervous system. And and amazing things can happen. And once you have that dog's trust, then you can start introducing new things to it. The trust is the paramount. Yeah. And the deep safety. I love that term, deep safety. Me too. Something that is really striking about this conversation for me is that in rescue, there is so much about a dog's past that we cannot control. And you talk about this in your book a little bit about how maternal stress and breeding practices all affect the eventual behavior of a dog. And it it it's so it can be so disheartening to think about what we're up against when we bring dogs into rescue dogs into our homes, whether as fosters or adopters, but there's a lot we can do. And that's the exciting thing about the industry is there are people like Dr. Laura, um, Kim Brophy and Andrew Hale and others, uh, Sarah Fisher and her free work, that they are um, taking time to step back and observe the body function, the body behavior, the canine communication. That's Owners need to know that first and foremost, and we have to do better as an industry. Like before you do anything, you need to study canine behavior because you need to read and honor what the dog is telling you. And we don't, we're not very good at that. 
So that that's the good thing about the industry and exciting because there's new studies, there's new ways of approaching helping dogs and the understanding of trauma is crucial and acknowledging trauma in dogs. And again, just moving house to house from their house of origin to maybe a new house, to a shelter, to a foster, to a home. That's a lot on a little being that can't say, this is making me nervous. So they say it in their body or they start having stress behaviors like tigers and zoos <laughs> and pacing. Um, captive orcas. This is what we've done to dogs. They are captives and we take away all their choices. And I tell clients I work with, it's counterintuitive, but the more choice you give your dog and you stop micromanaging and start saying, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. And start looking for ways to meet that dog's specific needs. Like I said, one of the foster puppies wanted to be hugged and the other one didn't. And he was so cute. I wanted to just carry him around all day. That's my need. That's not his need. I mean, focus strictly on safety, deep, deep safety. And how do I provide that? And to, to do that turnaround from starving looking feral dogs in six days, it's, it, it's yeah, I still, and it's, so anyway, yes, it is depressing that what we do to dogs is particularly mother dogs and what we expect of them. But there are things that are changing. And, and just that just blows my mind. What if this program that Laura and I are creating and she didn't invent it. She didn't invent somatic body work. She's a trauma expert, by the way, for humans, and our systems are very similar. Um, what if we have been focusing on the wrong thing all this time and we've gotten out of whack and our relationship has gotten out of whack because we are not giving the dogs what they need to feel calm. We're not calm. You know, we have to be too. And we've gotten less calm. Our societies have really gotten more and more frantic. And then it feels like dogs coming into our homes is becoming more and more common. Everybody seems to have a dog in their home. And so there is this, you know, almost like a little pressure cooker going on and we need the release valve. And I think so much of what you talk about with the deep safety, the agency, the control, giving the dog the choices helps take a little bit of that pressure off circling back to reactivity, like reactivity is, you know, the, the disease or, you know, the, the thing that comes, the symptom, yes, sorry, of all these other steps that we can kind of try to head off. And what you did with those puppies is you took them from like the pressure cooker that they were in and you, you took a different turn. Like you can feel safe and seen little puppy and your needs can be met and you don't have to be in this heightened state. Cause isn't that really what reactivity is? Can you talk to a little bit about like, what is reactivity? Yeah, um, traditionally trainers have defined reactivity as a dog that's overreacting to stimuli, meaning fleeing, running with their tail tucked, or most likely barking when she's in the leash. And we, that's what we're called for all the time. Reactivity is still really high in terms of what owners report. I think it's like 70, there was a big study, huge study the last couple of years that said 75% of owners report any behavior issue. And the number one was reactivity probably said as aggression is what most owners would consider it um, followed by separation anxiety or noise phobia so and all of that to me speaks to a dysregulated nervous system and that lizard brain saying you're in danger react before the body can um, laura calls it dr laura cognitive um, reappraisal you have to that's why we teach engage disengage or something like look at that 
giving the dog something to do with their eyes and their body to move it off from staring at the threat. And they can also hear it better than we can. Um, and kind of backing away, giving it space so that then it can cognitively, cognitively reappraise, am I in danger? But if you go back to me and my swinging the coffee mug at my husband, my, you don't have time to think. That's the body keeps the score. If you have had trauma and we've all had trauma and dogs are have like an extreme amount of trauma, thanks to humans, um, you can't go to therapy as a human and talk to your lizard brain. You defined reactivity as an overreaction. And I take issue with that because if we put ourselves in our dog's place and they can hear better and smell better than us, that dog walking down the street, who are we to say that the barking and lunging is an overreaction? I agree. And that's not my definition. That's the more sure. the <laughs> definition. Sure. Um, of course. And I just I just have to that's that's a little bugaboo of mine that I have to throw out there. I completely agree. And things like the ladder of aggression. It's not a ladder of aggression, it's a ladder of response. So yeah, I think even the term reactivity, it is a label. And labels don't help anybody and they don't help dogs because then you're focused on I gotta fix reactivity. And reactivity can express itself in so many different ways, including having a terrible looking coat. So are not eating or having sensitive stomach or diarrhea and just saying what we've done as an industry is saying, we're going to teach the dog engage, disengage. Look at that. Nothing wrong with those programs. It does give for that moment of cognitive reappraisal, but it doesn't solve the emotional problem. It doesn't help the dog self-regulate. Um, somatic body work we know does, and that's been proven in humans over and over. It's like people going to yoga. Um, that's the beginning. I have to say it really does work. Last week, a good friend of mine, her dog was in the emergency veterinary hospital here. And I went at like 9 PM and sat with him in the big kennel. And he was so stressed because he had not been a dog who had been kenneled in his life or, you know, been at boarding. And I had just, because I was reading your book, I had just watched that um, Laura doing that super heater smoothie thing, which is a silly name, but oh my God, it worked. He went from like you know, high respiration, eyes darting back. Like you could just tell he was in full stress mode, which isn't good when you're, you know, ill. So, and I did that on both his temples and down around the ears. And he just took, started to calm down and he took some breaths and then he laid down and like actually got that moment to like cognitively reappraise the situation that he was with me, he was safe and it was it was beautiful to watch and so the, these are really simple things that we can learn to help dogs even dogs that are you know have been in a home for 10 years who are having a suffer like a very stressful event like being in an emergency room and what i love about this body somatic body work and grounding exercises and tapping dr laura's taught us to tap you can tap for your dog um which you can just google tapping i think it's fascinating it's again using pressure points um, I tapped uh, Finn, who loves it, on his head with that divot in the top of his head um, uh, for thunderstorms this summer because when we had the monsoon season. Because one day we had a thunderstorm and uh, fireworks and the fire alarm went off in the house and we couldn't turn it off. We almost took a hammer to it. <laughs> it's just, we disconnected it because it was, it was so stressed 
that his eyes were darting back and forth and I thought he was stroking. He started blowing bubbles. Of course, we found him out of the house, but you can hear that thing forever. So now that heightened his noise sensitivity anyway. And so Thunder, he, he kind of just comes and curls up next to me. But I learned tapping from Laura. And you, so you tap on a pressure point. I tap on the top of his head and you say um, an affirmation to the dog. So I said, I was tapping on his forehead and his middle of the top of his head and said, Finn, even though you're really, really scared and it's really loud right now, you are loved unconditionally and you're safe. He went to sleep on my legs because he was half on my, I was on the bed and snored and his eyes were darting in REM sleep. And there's still thunder and there's still fireworks. And his brother hates tapping. Do not, <laughs> he doesn't want to be tapped. And he's a honey badger, don't care kind of um, healer. He's not nervous and high strung like Finn is. So I think it's, you can, you can tap for your dog, um, surrogate tapping. Um, and there's also pressure points that you can, additional pressure points that you can just rub counterclockwise. And a lot of dogs will let you do that. Libby, you're going to have to try that with Daisy. I'm going to. Well, I, I love tapping for myself, but it never occurred to me that I could try it with Daisy. But this conversation just keeps reminding me how that we are more alike than we are unalike with our dogs. I mean, we are, we're mammals. <laughs> we might be primates. They're canines. We're living in different worlds, but our nervous systems, our biology not that different and we have so much to learn from them that's what i say about rescue work the one reason i um i think i did that so much is because and i think this appeals to a lot of people and the one reason that even though i was exhausted and my husband was exhausted and my dogs were exhausted by those puppies and their needs when you rescue an animal and provide that safety i think you're also healing parts of yourself and i needed a lot of healing because i worked with four or five hundred foster dogs over a decade and then especially then because I was in charge of who where they went I got a say in that I mean this is why I'm not going to foster with this organization again because I know nothing about them those people and it was in a you know, live event in a park that is hard that's not cool um uh, so I think that's and dogs can we can help heal each other but we've kind of put that on the dog you heal me you comfort me and now it's our turn because we screwed it up we screwed up their lives. And I think that's why the book is so popular because I hold humans accountable. I, I list a problem and say human contribution. Right. Would the dog have this problem if we had not taken over their lives in every single aspect? And we did, but now we have an opportunity to fix it. And and what I love about how you phrase this in the book is it's, it's not... It's not always, oh, you're um, clicking at the wrong time or you're, uh, <laughs> you know, you're holding the leash too tight, which, you know, that is a problem too, but it's a bigger picture. It's a much bigger picture. Very much so. It's like a bird's eye view. You do in the book, um, two sample days of, of a dog's life, which I just thought was one of the most brilliant things I've ever read and it was like the sample day of dogs who's who's seen as by its owners and supported and encouraged and enriched and the other sample is the day in, in the life of like your average dog that is not seen and is just some sort of accoutrement to someone's life and I, I thought that was amazing can you speak to that a little bit I mean you kind of have throughout this podcast but it was such a amazing and powerful segment for me i feel like the sec the first one which was the sad dog 
was trying to get its needs met, including eating. They forget to feed it breakfast. And then they get mad because it peed by the closest to the door as it could pee because I had to go. And so the dog's in trouble for having natural needs and shut down and no enrichment. You're just an afterthought. And a lot of children in dysfunctional homes are that way. It's neglect. You know, certainly physical abuse happens as well and sexual abuse all over the place. But my case was neglect. And that's just as damaging emotional neglect. They didn't care where, where we were, what we were doing or even if our clothes were clean, kind of neglect. Um, that's extremely damaging. You don't feel seen and heard. And then the second day was the same dog. And it's completely, you know, not like obsessively focused, the family, but everybody was aware that the dog needed things throughout the day, like a walk, um, playing with the daughter when she got home, going outside through the dog door so he could relieve himself, and um, sleeping. I put in a nap because that's so important. Adult dogs need to have naps. If you know, so it's like daycare for kids. You've had your snack and you're going to nap in the morning and you're going to nap in the afternoon. We could just leave the dog door open all day and let them go in and out, in and out because we're both home. But that's not good for them. They have to have that that time to sleep. It's like you said, it's back and way up. And it's as simple as making sure the bond stays intact and nothing we're doing, including um, not enough enrichment. Not enough sniffing. Um, it, it, what are we doing to create that safety? And it really comes back to safety and, and regulating that body system. And we need it just as much as they do. And that's why I like that it, it works on us and it works on them. I feel like through this work, we as humans grow. So not only are we helping our dogs and you know creating a more resilient, you know, calmer dog, hopefully, we're also learning about our own nervous systems and how to, you know, look at our own traumas and, you know, all become better people, especially during this hard time in our world. This, this work is really important. I think. It's desperate. It's desperate. needed. Yeah. And that, that connection with a nonverbal species is really something beautiful when you get deeper into it. And then you're right, like our nervous systems can co-regulate as we're working with our dogs. We owe it to them. After all we've done to this to this species, we owe it to help them calm down and to live lives that are, they are here for 10, 12, 15 years, if you're lucky. And so let's not spend the first five years of their life teaching them to lie down for an hour on a mat. That That's not a, an, enjoy, an enjoyable life. Well, Annie Phoenix, this has been an inspiring and illuminating conversation. And we're just so grateful that you took the time to talk with us and that you took the time to write this amazing book. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for your work. You guys are doing, you're in the middle of it, doing it every single day. And it's a very, very, very hard job. Yeah. And I wanted to also thank um, one person who is the podcast but is a super integral part of this whole conversation is hillary lane who is a mutual friend of ours all and she's the board member of summit dog and she actually connected us with you annie and she's amazing and she helped with questions and reading the book and yeah we couldn't do this without her annie where can our listeners find out more about you website social media um i have a private facebook group that is very supportive called the midnight dog walkers club um, you have to answer questions to get in. We don't promote anything that's not compassionate or kind for animals, and we're kind to each other. 
And that's a mix of professionals and owners. And people can bring questions specifically about their own dog. I, I recently asked for um, suggestions on toys for a hard chewer for a client. And I, there was stuff I'd never heard of. And my own dogs are hard chewers. And I keep frustrated because they chew so quickly. Um, I My website is phoenixdogs.com. It's P-H-E-N-I-X, no O. And I have courses on there, a lot of that are for owners. That's wonderful. We will put all of those links in the show notes as well. Well, I just hope all our listeners go out and get this book and share it with their friends and relatives and, you know, all rescuers and shelters really give it a good read because I think it's, it's mind changing. And I also think Libby's suggestion of the bigger picture, I think that would be like a great little subtitle for it. Like it is like a bigger picture of what a dog is and how we can meet their needs. Yep, for sure. And um, on your Facebook page, after this airs, Dr. Laura Donaldson and I would like to give away um, one seat in our January class, um, Transforming Puppies, using what she's learned and what I've learned from her. And this might, I'm going to detail how I, what I did with my own two dogs that took six months to earn their trust and how I did it in six days. Um, everything that we did so that people can repeat it. And she's going to go into the science. She's very good at bringing the science behind somatic body work. So that's January 7th, I believe. Um, and there'll be two Facebook group meetings as well. It's $50. We would like to donate, pick a winner on your Facebook page, I guess. And then I would like to give a signed copy of my book to someone, one of your listeners, um, probably also, I think we're going to do it through your Facebook page. Have a little discussion on your Facebook or, or something when this comes out. Definitely. Listeners, um, make sure that you're following us on Facebook and that you um, are watching our posts for more information on those giveaways. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'd love to have you back to talk more another time. I'd love to get back anytime. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and James Ede of Be Heard for production. For show notes and transcripts, visit podtotherescue.com. Let us know what you think about this episode on social media. We're at Pod to the Rescue on Facebook and Instagram, and we love connecting with listeners. We'll catch you next time on Pod to the Rescue. Oh, and tell your dog we said hi.